The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Thanks, Michelle. And uh, I'd like to first by just acknowledging the fantastic support from the Keck Institute. Uh, I've run a short course uh, a couple of years ago and really looking forward to this one. I can tell you that uh, Michelle Judd and uh, Tom Prince, who is the, um, the lead of the Keck Institute right now, uh, just are a, uh, it's a great organization and it's been um, extremely helpful in, in getting new and exciting things going. So this week, um, we're going to be talking about uh, measuring photosynthesis from space. And of course, this is a, a very interesting challenge. Um, of course, we all know that uh, we can see that plants are green. And in fact, the greenness of plants is one of the things that has historically been used to, to try to understand and estimate photosynthesis from space just by, by color photography. And of course, we know that if we go out at night and we look at those trees, they're still green, even though, of course, there's no photosynthesis going on. And so today and over the next week, we're going to be talking about new tools that allow us to use the photophysics of, of plant photosynthesis to actually get closer to actually observing the, the photosynthesis, photosynthetic uh, process itself. And so it's, it's a very exciting workshop. We've uh, invited people from many different communities. And as is, of course, the case with all environmental science, that's the way we can make progress is through bringing together the multidisciplinary communities to, to attack a problem in a new and very interesting way. So the context for this workshop, um, at least one important context, is that of the global carbon cycle. That is to say, trying to understand the uh, pathways by which carbon is assimilated between the atmosphere and the land, how those processes are altered by humidity, soil temperature, climate. And uh, today, we have our first presentation, which is to, to really place that this work of this workshop in that, that broadest uh, scale context of the, of the global carbon cycle. We uh, had invited our participant, uh, Scott Denning, to uh, prepare this, uh, this talk. Unfortunately, due to the death of his mother this last week, uh, Scott is not able to, to attend. But uh, fortunately, his close colleague, Ian Baker, um, has agreed and on very short notice to come up and tell us about that broadest uh, context. So Ian is a research associate at Colorado State. Uh, he received his PhD from that institution in 2009 in ecology. Like all good environmental sciences, uh, his pathway to ecology came through other fields, atmospheric science, uh, for his master's and then his bachelor's degree in meteorology. So uh, Ian, thanks again for uh, coming, and we look forward to hearing about uh, the global carbon cycle. Well, thank you for the invitation. Um, it wasn't too much of a challenge to come on short notice because we are giving sort of more of a, a uh, accessible talk uh, uh, for, this, for this particular event today. Um, so I'm going to give sort of a general overview. Uh, I don't know, I haven't seen either Joe's or Christian's talk, but I guess I'm guessing that mine might be the least technical of the three. Um, I'm sort of going to talk about the global carbon cycle, sort of put some of this other work into context, talk about why we care, um, why, are we, why, are we, why are we interested in this. Um, 
I'm not really going to talk about global warming per se. I'm going to talk about, again, as it says, the global carbon cycle. And the place where we can really start with this is we can start with the fact that we know for a fact, there's no question that atmospheric CO2 levels are rising. This is data taken by, by NOAA from the uh, Mauna Loa Observatory, about 50 years worth from 1960 to 2010. And what you see is that there's a, a steady increase in the amount of CO2 from about 320 parts per million near uh, 1960 up to almost 400 parts per million today. Uh, for context, the uh, pre-industrial or like the 1750 value that we really think about is about 250 to 260, somewhere in there, parts per million. So CO2 is in the atmosphere is going up. Um, and you can see, right, we're looking at, at Mauna Loa in this case, but you, know, you see this at a number of sites across the globe. Now, there might be some differences, mainly sort of northern to southern hemisphere, but they all show this, this same signal. And what you're seeing here is the actual sort of weekly uh, flask measurements on, in the red here. And then the black is sort of the annual mean or a more average. And what you see is that it's not a steady increase. There are places here where maybe it slows down a little bit, like in the early 1990s. Other places where it rises very, very rapidly. So it's not this slow, consistent raise. It's sort of moving up at a sort of this herky-jerky uh, type of signal. And then this sort of annual oscillation, uh, we can talk about that. I'm going to mention that a little bit later. Um, so in a nutshell, what we can say is that we are mining fossil, fossil CO2 and titrating it into the oceans. And this is, again, buffered by acid-based chemistry. And much of this CO2 will remain in the atmosphere for a long, long time. About half of the CO2, this is a very important point, we're going to talk a lot about this. About half of the CO2 that we put into the atmosphere every year is absorbed by some poorly quantified sink processes. And I'm going to spend, a, a lot of my talk is going to talk about these various mechanisms and what we know and what we do not know. And the important sort of take home message here is the strength and even the sign of potential carbon climate feedback is one of the most uncertain things um, aspects of the climate change in the 21st century. So this is why we care. If we're going to predict what's going to happen in, in, under future climate, we have to understand a lot of mechanisms that right now are relatively uncertain. So starting about the carbon cycle, we have to sort of talk about, I'm right underneath this thing. If you don't mind, I'm going to move out here. Um, we need to really talk about photosynthesis. And so the, the photosynthesis is the process that really sort of drives life on this planet and makes a lot of things possible. And so photosynthesis is where plants use the energy of the sun to convert inorganic air, or CO2, into living biomass. And then this energy is then re-released through uh, organisms that consume this, the, the, this uh, organic material, and they take the energy that has been put into these chemical bonds during the process of photosynthesis, and they release that energy through the breaking of those bonds, and then that's how, that's how, uh, that's how organisms live, that's how we power the energy of our, of our economy. And so everything really sort of starts with photosynthesis. And an understanding of photosynthesis on multiple levels is really inherent to understanding of the carbon cycle. And we can talk about the breathing of the Earth, right? These plants harvest the solar energy. And amazingly, they consume about one-seventh of all CO2 in the atmosphere, approximately, give or take, on an annual basis. So if there wasn't this re-release of CO2 back into the atmosphere, the atmosphere would be devoid of CO2 in about seven years. This is a very large magnitude cycle. The plants are drawing down a lot of CO2 every year. Um, and then, of course, over geologic time, 
a very small amount of this uh, organic material is accumulated as fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas. And so we can talk about fossil fuels, this little cartoon that Scott put together where we can see little, little organic things either on the land or on the seafloor, and they generally accumulate during, during, you know, over multiple years, and then eventually turn into these sort of reserves of, say, uh, uh, gas or oil, or uh, in this case, coal, right? And these are all stored chemical bonds that were produced by photosynthesis that we then use. This is now just a quick picture of hydrocarbons, where you see you have, right, the hydrogen and the carbogen, and then you have the, the energy of these chemical bonds. And we, when we consume, when we burn these fossil fuels then, what it produces is CO2, carbon dioxide, water vapor, and then energy. And that's what we use to drive our economy. So this is a very important, right, this sort of drives our world. And so here's the picture of, this is, this is the carbon cycle right here. What you can see here is, okay, the units here are gigatons. That is uh, 10 to the 9th tons or 10 to the 15th grams. These are very large amounts. And what you see is we store about 775, maybe 800 gigatons in the atmosphere. There's a much larger storage in the ocean because it's a much larger reservoir. And then the land in the terms of the plants, now this isn't the rocks, this is only the vegetation, has about 2,000 gigatons of, of, uh, of carbon stored in the plants. And you see that there are very large annual cycles, 120 gigatons per year being exchanged. This is the photosynthesis being taken up by the plants and then an attendant release, which is approximately the same size, that is then respired every year back into the atmosphere. The oceans is a little bit less, around 90 gigatons. And then here's the fossil fuel. It's about 8 gigatons per year, but of that, only about half of it stays in the atmosphere every year. And we can get a good picture of it right here. This is now the total emissions is this top line. And we know that fairly well from economic data. We can tell how much fossil fuel we're burning, and we also know how much is staying in the atmosphere. Again, this is the concentration measured at Mauna Loa, and there are flash stations all over the world where they measure the amount of CO2. The winds mix it around, and so the atmosphere is fairly well mixed. And what we know is only about half of it. This green part um, shows the amount that is taken up by the, at, by, the, uh, by the rest of the system from what was emitted into the atmosphere. The blue shows the amount that is, that is incremented into the atmosphere every year. What this blue represents is sort of the steepness of the line. You can see here in the early 1990s, that corresponds with this sort of flat part of the line. Here in 1998, that's this sharp hike, okay? So the accumulation in the atmosphere is, okay, is very uh, jumpy, it's very irregular. The amount of CO2 that we're burning each year it, it changes with, you know, you'll see sort of an economic downturn. There was another one here at the, you know, 2007, 2008 where it didn't increase very much. But the amount that's being accumulated in the atmosphere is very, very, extremely variable. So there are processes that are then taking that CO2 and not allowing it to accumulate in the atmosphere, and they change quite a bit. I think I just said some of the things. Yes, all, some years almost all the fossil carbon goes into the atmosphere. Um, the variability in these sink mechanisms is much greater than the variability in the emissions. And then finally, there might be, now Scott made this slide, we might argue about this a little bit, but sometimes the sink, you see here, well this maybe isn't the right one to use, these red lines are El Nino events. Here's an El Nino event in 1997-98 where you have almost all of the CO2 
that was emitted by fossil fuel accumulated in the atmosphere that year. Other years, El Ninos have different events, but in general, what you sort of see is a greater accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere during El Nino events. And so one of the questions we ask is why? Why is that happening and how is that happening? So where has all the carbon gone? Well, there's only a couple places that it can go. It can go into the oceans. One way that it can go into the oceans is through what's called the solubility pump. This is sort of a straight chemical reaction where if you have a greater concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere than is in the water, the CO2 will go into the water. Um, there's also the biological pump. There are, uh, there are little organisms that photosynthesize in the ocean, and they can take CO2 out as well. And I'm going to go into that in a little bit more detail. The carbon can go into the land. Um, we can talk about various mechanisms for that. One is CO2 fertilization. Plants eat CO2. They consume CO2, turn it into starches and sugars and, and you know, wood and leaves and stuff. And so since they eat that CO2, is more CO2 better for them? There can be nutrient fertilization. Um, pollution also produces uh, nutrients like nitrogen, um, phosphorus, uh, other nutrients that plants might need that might help them grow. So actually, in some cases, pollution might actually be helping plants grow a little bit. Um, land use change. Now, we can think about sort of, we put here, you know, what about Walmarts? And we think in that case, like about deforestation. But there can be other land use change, like forest regrowth over abandoned farmland, fire suppression, or woody encroachment. And I'm going to talk about all these things a little, little bit more detail a little bit later. And then finally, we can talk about a response to changing climate. If we're, if we're warming the planet, that actually might have an influence on how carbon is taken up in the land. Um, but we'll start by going, sort of talking about the oceans a little bit. And this is just a little, a little slide. We can think about this as sort of a titration of CO2 into the oceans. But first, a little background, okay? The oceans are very stably stratified. That is, the coldest water is at the bottom of the ocean, the warmest water at the top. This makes it very stable. It's not conducive to overturning. Um, it takes, right, since, there, since it is very stable, it takes a long time to mix things around in the ocean, thousands of years. And there are only a couple of places in the ocean. You see here in the north, this is the North Atlantic deep water, and then in the south, the, the Antarctic bottom water, where you have areas where the surface water actually gets very cold, colder than the water below it, and so it then is actually negatively buoyant, and that water has a tendency to sink down to depth. And these are really the only places where we can be taking sort of surface conditions, surface impacted water, and be transporting it into the deep water. So the ocean is very stably stratified. Now here's another thing that, we've, that is very sort of interesting, um, you know, like we say, a bad idea, but, but good, for, good for the carbon cycle studies. In 19, let's see, I believe that the, the test ban treaty was signed and was going to go into effect in 1964. And so in late 1963, in kind of a smoke em if you got em attitude, both the U.S. and Soviet Union exploded dozens of thermonuclear weapons, right? The test ban treaty banned above-ground tests of nuclear bombs. And so since they were not going to be able to do that anymore, they exploded a whole bunch of bombs and, ex and, and released a whole bunch of radioactive carbon-14 into the atmosphere. So carbon-14 is radioactive. It decays at a known rate. I think it's a half-life of around 5,000 years. And so what this did is it actually sort of produces a tracer. It reduced this big spike all through the atmosphere, all through the ecosystem, and allowed us to use it as a tracer. 
And one of the first ways that we could do that, or well, wait a second, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So this is now sampling of, of, of water in the ocean. This is what's called a rosette, and they send ships out across the ocean on a prescribed track, and every 50 or 100 kilometers, they'll stop the ship, and then they'll lower this thing down into the depth, all the way down to the bottom of the ocean, and what they do is they open these individual flasks at various depths so that they're sampling water at multiple depths. So they'll be able to sample, right, on a, on a straight line, on a, on a transect, and then they'll be able to sample at depth too. And during the 90s, there were a number of these studies that were done. Um, I'm trying to remember my, the World Ocean Circulation Experiment, the Joint Global Ocean Flux Study, and I don't remember the last one. Uh, but what these did was it gave you a very uh, complete sampling of the global oceans, both at the surface and at depth, and what they were able to do from these studies was they were now able to record and, and determine the anthropogenic or human component of the DIC, or dissolved inorganic carbon. And so like it says here, you can get that from stoichiometry and from those carbon-14 uh, measurements, but you can see that most of the human or anthropogenic CO2 is in this top few hundred meters. This is, again, partially because of that thermal stratification of the oceans. Um, what we have here is, is uh, sort of a cross-section. You can think about sort of, you we're looking uh, on the Atlantic Ocean from 60 south up to 70 north. Here's the Indian Ocean from 60 south to 20 north, and then the Pacific. And so what you see is that most of this anthropogenic CO2 is confined to the near surface. You can sort of get a hint. This is the, the North Atlantic deep water. This is one of the places where the water is very cold and starting to, to move down towards the, 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 the ocean floor. And it may be a signal of the Antarctic bottom water down here in the Pacific. Um, but in each of these cases, you see there is very little or almost no anthropogenic CO2 down at the bottom of the ocean. The lower ocean doesn't even know that humans are on the planet yet. Um, so we can talk about how that CO2 gets into the water. Um, the first way, I had mentioned this earlier, the solubility pump. CO2 is soluble in water, and that solubility depends on temperature. This is now a graph where we have 0 Celsius to 30 Celsius on the x-axis, and then the solubility here on the, on the y-axis. And you see the colder water, it's more soluble. This is part of the reason why you don't have uh, uh, coral reefs at high latitudes, right? The colder water would, would, uh, would dissolve them, or could. Um, and so then here where you have the colder water, that's about the only place where you're really bringing CO2 into the seawater and moving it away. You will still get some solubility pump in these warmer oceans, but they're not going to go anywhere. They're not, it's not going to be moved away from the surface. And then this is now the biological pump. Um, there's a lot of words there. I'm not going to read them all, but briefly, what happens is, is you have what are called phytoplankton. See right here, these are basically little, little plants in the water. They consume CO2 just you know, through photosynthesis. Um, these phytoplankton are eaten by zooplankton. Um, and then as these little critters die, they start to sort of coagulate into bigger particles. And then they sort of drift. And you have this sort of consistent sedimenting of, of organic material from the surface ocean down towards the ocean floor where it accumulates in the mud on the ocean floor. And so this is a way that you can actually move CO2 out of the atmosphere into the water where it's then consumed by phytoplankton and zooplankton 
and then it sort of exports it away from the surface. So this is another way to get water or to get CO2 away from the ocean surface. But this isn't going to be a very fast process. And so if you think about these processes and think about this in the future going up, as long as we are increasing CO2 in the atmosphere, that CO2 will be taken up by the solubility pump and the biological pump. And so you will continually, right, this is known. This is chemistry you can do in a lab, okay? It's, it's not really in question for the future. And so even as CO2 levels in the atmosphere increase, say due to fossil fuel burning, these mechanisms are not really going to change, okay? Solubility pump and biological pump are still going to be there. However, one thing that we do know is we know that when we dissolve CO2 in seawater, it's a fairly straightforward chemical equation. And what it does is it, it, it's, it's working in this buffered system, but it interacts with pH. It makes the ocean more acidic. Um, this, again, is chemistry that you can do in a lab. And so there is no question about this. And this is now a study where we're looking off the California coast. This is now 1750, present day and then 50 years in the future. And they're predicting what the pH or acidity of the surface ocean is going to be. And you see that it's going from a higher value or less acidic to a lower value or more acidic in the future. Um, why is this important? Well, if you look at this little line here, this they do then at sort of a, uh, an XZ cross section, sort of looking, uh, slicing across that line. And they're looking at the aragonite saturation depth. And what this is, is this is a depth dependent on both acidity and the pressure of the depth, where basically the water is acidic enough to, to dissolve the shells of mollusks and clams. And as long as this is down in the depth, it's not a big deal. But when this becomes very close to the surface or shoals, it can actually very negatively impact fisheries. Uh, uh, some of the some of the, like the clam and oyster fisheries, you're even seeing this in the Pacific North, Northwest already. Okay, if, if, if the shells get dissolved in surface seawater, these organisms are not going to be able to survive. So this is a potential ecological impact, not directly related to, say, climate change in terms of, of a direct influence or participant in climate change, but a, a sort of a consequence of, and it could have very disastrous consequences for the uh, ocean ecology. Um, this is another plot. This is now looking from Mauna Loa, where you see the Mauna Loa CO2, and then you see the ocean CO2 is increasing, you know, not exactly in, in lockstep with the, the atmospheric CO2 concentration, but the, the oceanic CO2 is increasing, and then a resultant uh, decrease in, in the pH or increase in the, in the acidity. These are from, uh, this is from the Mauna Loa site, and then these are two sites in the, in the Pacific Ocean. And so, we're, we're seeing this acidification of, of the ocean in response to rising levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. So to summarize about the ocean, right, it's thermally stratified, so mixing is slow. Um, these carbon isotopes from the, from the bomb test, they provide a marker, and, and it's, it's pretty well known. The oceans behave in a pretty well-constrained way, and we, you know, we don't have everything figured out, but we, right, we know about sort of the turnover time. Um, we know about the processes that will take CO2 into the ocean, and it, this, is a, this is a process that will continue to increase. In other words, the ocean uptake will increase as atmospheric CO2 increases, but there's this sort of acidification that could be a very harmful consequence for the ocean. 
So after the ocean, we move on to the land. And so before we do that, let's talk about the things we know, right? We know CO2 is increasing annually in the atmosphere in response to fossil fuel consumption. We know only about half of it stays in the atmosphere in a given year. We know about a quarter of that goes into the ocean. This is what I was just talking about. We know, we think we know how it goes in. We know about the magnitude that goes in. And it's fairly well constrained. So the other quarter of that, C of that fossil fuel CO2 that we inject into the atmosphere, it has to go in the land. That's the only place for it to go. And so we have to ask, what are the processes? What are the, what are the sort of the mechanisms by which that's happening? And again, if we're thinking about CO2 going into the land, we have to go back to leaf anatomy. And I think Joe's probably going to talk more about, uh, in more detail about photosynthesis than I am. But we can just briefly talk about sort of leaf behavior. This is sort of a cross-section of a leaf. And leaves have little holes in them. It's called a stomate or multiple stomata. And what these are, these are little holes where the CO2 gets into the plant. Since, remember, plants consume CO2 for their livelihood, um, this is how it gets in. However, it's an optimization mechanism, okay? Plants eat this CO2 for a living, so they have this little hole to, to expose their interior to let the CO2 in. But in doing so, they also expose their interior for, for water, water vapor, to, to, to leave the plant, to dry them out. And so it is this sort of optimization, right? The plant wants to eat CO2. It doesn't want to lose water if it doesn't have to. So if the plant is perfectly happy, it's a humid day, uh, plenty of soil water, it'll say go ahead, right? It'll open that stomate wide open, and it will be taking CO2 in, and it isn't really worried about the water that it's losing. However, let that soil dry out a better. Maybe it's a little bit hotter, a little bit drier day. That plant is now going to want to regulate. It will maybe close that stomate a little bit, and it'll say, okay, I'll sort of do without the CO2 that I might be eating because it's actually better for me to not lose that water. And so these stomates are regulating plant behavior. And so by doing so, right, they're regulating their, their livelihood. They're also then sort of controlling the total carbon balance within a canopy. You can think about this dashed line of sort of the canopy top. And this is the air within the canopy. And then these blue lines are sort of the uptake or the removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. And don't really worry about the storage because over the long term, the storage is going to sort of even out. Um, so really, your uptake mechanism is photosynthesis. That's how, that's how CO2 gets into the plant. Now, how it leaves can be from various respiration mechanisms. There's dark respiration. When it's nighttime out, the plant is still respiring. It has to, it has to consume some of the energy in those chemical bonds to keep itself alive. It has to do so during the day when it's, when it's photosynthesizing, sort of a cost of doing business in photorespiration. There's respiration from, from uh, trunks and twigs. There's respiration from roots. And then when plant material dies, little microbes, little bugs come and eat that plant material and use the energy that's stored in those, in those chemical bonds, as well as microbes consuming leaf litter, say the leaves that fall onto the ground. And so these red lines are all ways that CO2 is, is put into the atmosphere. And then this blue line is how it's taken up. But what we have to remember is, if the plant is taking up a quarter of our fossil fuel that we, that we burn every year, that we consume in our economy, then the plants have to be growing faster than they're decomposing. This arrow has to be taking up a little bit more than the sum of all these. It has to. That's the only way that the land can take up more CO2 than it's, than it's releasing. That's the only way that we can have this sink. So what are some of these mechanisms? We talked briefly about CO2 fertilization. 
maybe nitrogen or other nutrient fertilization or seasonal broadening, and I'm gonna go into a little bit more detail about some of those now. We can talk about CO2 fertilization. Remember, plants consume CO2 as part of their, as their, as their livelihood during the process of photosynthesis. So if we have more CO2 in the atmosphere, then perhaps that means that we're sort of increasing photosynthesis. And what this plot is showing is that on some time scale, we're gonna call it tau here, the, the, the photosynthesis is actually out ahead of the respiration, right? As you're accumulating organic material during photosynthesis, at some point your respiration has to catch up. But if this time scale represents how far ahead the photosynthesis is from the respiration, then that sort of represents a sink, right? In any given year, we now have this much more photosynthesis than we have respiration. Um, this plot over here on the right-hand side just shows in one particular study, their estimate of where that's happening. They're showing some of it here in sort of northern forests in, in North America and Eurasia. And we can test this. Um, these are from experiments called the Free Air Carbon Enrichment, or FACE experiments, where they go out and they put a ring of, of, uh, of ventilators out in the forest. I think this one's at the Duke Forest in North Carolina. And they blow CO2 on the plants in there. Um, they, could, they do so in known amounts. They can measure how much they're elevating CO2. They can watch how it behaves under changing weather conditions. And they can also do uh, tests of not only CO2, but other nutrients as well, right? You're out here, you can, you can then put more and more nutrients on, on some of these plots if you'd like. And so what do these show? This is now from the, from the same face experiment, I believe, at, at Duke. Um, and what it shows is the elevated CO2 plot is shown in black. This is now uh, the, 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 the carbon, right, the carbon increment in kilograms carbon per meter squared of ground. And then this is sort of on a per tree basis. And what you see is you have this elevation here for the first few years, but then it kind of tails off. And you maybe see it here, maybe this one isn't the right one to look at, but you're right, for a couple of years here, you have an increased increment, and then it sort of goes back to what it was before. And so what some people say this means is, is that if you give elevated CO2 to a plant, it will respond initially, but then after that initial sort of burst, it, it catches up and other nutrients become limiting. Another thing to think about is, this is just a little cartoon I, I, I drew, you can think about if you're warming the planet, right? If this was your, your previous growing season, say winter and then spring, you get you know, bud burst and leaf out, and then leaves fall off in the fall. Well, if you make your year warmer, you can actually be extending your growing season. And if you're doing that now, now you have these two little bits on either side of your previous sort of historical growing season that you can still be accumulating carbon. This is another way where you can have your photosynthesis now sort of out ahead of your respiration and be bringing in more CO2 than you're releasing. Another mechanism that people have talked about is woody encroachment, um, both in the Arctic and in Savannah. And how you can think about this is as you go north, you reach the tree line at some point, it's too cold. And people are talking about under a warming climate, you're now getting the movement of trees, shrubs, and woody vegetation towards the north. That now represents a potential further sink of CO2 because if you're storing that CO2 in, in, uh, in shrubs and, and, and trunks, then that's CO2 that is sort of removed on a more permanent basis from the atmosphere. In savannas, they're talking about woody encroachment, I think a lot of times in, in, in response to human impacts. With humans in the, in the savannas, you're seeing more trees, right? A savanna is a, uh, a combination of trees and grass, and in a lot of savannas, you're seeing more and more trees. So the, 
the uh, relative fraction of grasses is maybe going down a little bit and the trees a little bit more in some of these savannas. People have also talked about fire suppression where um, particularly in North America, if you're, if you're both preventing fires, like Smokey Bear says, and also putting them out, you're maybe taking carbon that used to be released into the atmosphere and you're keeping it in the forest. And so these are other possible mechanisms where CO2 is now being stored in the land as a way to generate that sink that we're observing. But, and there's always a but, if we think about woody encroachment, okay, this is warming in, in this case, we'll think about sort of the northern hemisphere. If you warm the northern hemisphere, you might be thawing the permafrost. So permafrost is very cold, frozen soil in, in northern latitudes. This is now an observation of continuous, discontinuous, sporadic, and isolated permafrost in the northern hemisphere. And you see there are large areas where, okay, what happens in permafrost is you have a, a, a fairly shallow layer at the top of the soil called the active layer. And this is where it will thaw out during the summer. And then below that is just this massive block of frozen soil. And what happens is, is that dead uh, vegetative material will sort of slowly sink and will slowly be taken up in that permafrost where it's really locked in, okay? That's frozen soil. Little microbes aren't gonna live there. Nothing is gonna decompose that. So as long as that permafrost is there, there's a lot of CO2, a lot of carbon stored in that block of permafrost. If you warm it, now you make that, that permafrost, the, the, the carbon that's stored there, accessible to the atmosphere. And this is now a projection from a modeling study by Dave Lawrence where in his model, he shows that he gets a reasonably similar uh, combination of, what the, of, of the observed permafrost. And then this is his prediction of what's going to happen by the end of this century. And what you see is, is that a lot of the permafrost that you used to have has now been thawed. And so we can talk about woody encroachment being a potential sink mechanism for carbon, but permafrost warming could be a potential source. And so we don't know, right, which one of these is going to outweigh the other. When we talk about fire suppression, this is a study that was done, oh, I forget the name, but what they're showing here in black, they're showing from a forest inventory from around 1930, and then they're showing forest inventory from around 1990 in the light gray. So in stem density, that is the number of stems per given area, there are more of them at the end of the 20th century than there were early in the 20th century. These are for different DBH, diameter at breast type, different size classes. So what they're showing here is there are more trees, as probably in, in response to fire suppression. However, they're also showing that there is less carbon stored in a lot of them. So in other words, even though you're getting more trees, when you had fewer of them, they were storing more carbon. For a, for a given size class, this probably means that tree was taller previously when they weren't as crowded. Um, another thing that people talk about is they talk about with fire suppression, they talk about the higher intensity of fires that do occur. Um, when you do fire suppression, you get a higher density of stems. Um, in a lot of the western U.S., uh, fires have been always been started, say, by lightning, um, and you will have these sort of ground fires that come through and clear out, say, uh, trees that are trying to get established, the underbrush, and the big trees don't get consumed. With more stems in, in a given area, 
you have uh, what they call ladder fuels. You have a way for that fire to get up into the crown, and then you have these big sort of stand clearing fires. And, and unfortunately, I actually have uh, some personal experience with this. Uh, I grew up, uh, I live in Fort Collins now, and I grew up in the woods uh, just west of town. And there was a pretty big fire came through there. This is, this is the family land where I'm uh, cutting a tree. This picture, I think, was taken in 2009. And following that fire this spring, this is what it looks like now. And so you can see this was not a ground fire. Uh, this was a crown fire, and it basically burned about 40,000 acres like this. Um, and so there was an initial pretty big flush of carbon as these trees burned, and these trees are all dead now. And so there's going to be another release of carbon as these trees either decompose or I burn them in my fireplace. Uh, and so in terms of fire suppression, again, I don't think that we know what the magnitude of that term is. Is it a sink term? Is it a source term? Um, here's another one when we talk about, about climate change. This is uh, a group from Europe has, has made a lot of noise about, about Amazon conversion. The tropical forests in, in Amazonia are the largest forests in the world. Some estimates say that like 10% of global above ground biomass lives here. And some people have said that, that this is an ecosystem sort of on the edge with a little bit of climate change, a little bit of warming, a little bit of a change in the precipitation regime in this area. And what will happen is, is that the forest will then be replaced by savanna or even grassland. So this is from a modeling study where they show the amount of reduction in fractional cover of the broadleaf tree of tropical forest by 2050, right? That's less than 40 years from now. Um, they're showing sort of a 5 to 10% change and then almost a half by the end of this, of this century. What that would result in, there is a lot of carbon stored in those tropical forests. If you take those trees and decompose them, you're now injecting a lot more CO2 into the atmosphere. So this is another potential source mechanism. So moving back to sort of the amount of the sink. Remember we were talking about sort of the, the CO2 release, the CO2 emission rate is fairly smooth and this uptake is quite variable with time. If you think about sort of the line represented by sort of in between the blue and the green and sort of flip that on its head, that now becomes this line. This is from a modeling study. And so what they're showing is the global source or sink. And what you can see is this is now that 1998 peak. That represents this little peak right here. You see this pretty large uh, sink term. That results these few years right in here. And so you see that there's now quite a bit of variability, right? This, I was, let's see, this goes from 1960, 82. So yeah, this, this right here corresponds to this peak right in here. And you see that the amount of sink is quite variable with time. And remember, I said that we think that we know the oceans fairly well. So now we can split that sink into land total and ocean total. And if you first look at these, you say, well, there's quite a bit of variability in each of them. But if you look at the ocean, look at the units. Okay, this is again time, 1982 through 2002. And now this is the amount of the flux. And you see, first of all, from the ocean, it doesn't vary that much between about 0.5 and 2 petagrams per year. And it's always a sink, right? Remember, because of the solubility pump and the biological pump, the ocean is always going to be a sink. And we have a pretty good handle on the magnitude of that sink. For the land, on the other hand, 
we see it's quite variable, right? The scale here is quite a bit larger, and it can go from being a source to a sink from year, from year to year. So there's a lot of variability in that land sink. And we can break this land total down even further. I only show one of them. I mean, he breaks it down into North American temperate, North American boreal, you know, Europe, and all these different areas. But what you can see is that tropical South America, those tropical forests, are responsible for a large fraction of this overall land sink, whether it is a source or a sink. The tropical forests are very important to the land sink. So let's review. What do we know? We know that CO2 levels are rising. We know that, that it's caused by human consumption of fossil fuel. We know there's a natural sink of about half of the emitted CO2, and it has to go into the, either the ocean or the land. We know that the land sink is more variable than the oceanic. And we know that in general terms, plants are growing more than they are dying. That's the only way that you can have a sink right now. What we don't know, what are those exact physical mechanisms? Is it CO2 fertilization? Is it nitrogen and other nutrient fertilization? Is it land cover change? Um, is it fire suppression? Um, we don't know the spatial organization. How exactly is, is, the, is the sort of the, where is it happening? We don't know what it's going to do in the future, right? Is, are the land sinks that we're currently seeing, are they going to continue forever? Um, and then what action, right? Humans are going to play a role in this. And we don't know what humans are going to do, okay? Predicting, predicting, you know, economic, political future three months from here is difficult, let alone, you know, 50 to 100 years. And so we can think about this, just sort of in a, in a little cartoon here, you can think that maybe we're in a period right, right here where we're increasing our CO2 uptake by, you know, this is now a plot of dry matter versus time, but you can think about this as, you know, the, the, the plant or the, the, this region is taking up more CO2 than it's, than it's losing. You could think about maybe on a global basis this is what we're doing. But at some point you've got to reach sort of the, the maximum amount. Um, we probably can't have our, our photosynthesis out ahead of our respiration on into the future forever. So at some point, we're going to max out. Another thing, we talk about sort of human behavior. This is now emission scenarios from the IPCC. In about 2000, they made some predictions. This is now what we've done for fossil fuel. This is how much fossil fuel we've consumed in billions of tons or petagrams. And then what they did was they, they sort of played out several different scenarios for what's going to happen in the future. These ones down here, these are sort of the drastic, we're going to cut our carbon emissions drastically, you know, in the next 50 years. This red one is what we call the business as usual, right? Don't do anything, just keep going the way you're going. And I don't plot it on here, but, you know, it's about, well, 2012 now. And what you can see if you plot the actual data on top of this is we're actually putting more CO2 into the atmosphere than the uh, business as usual, okay? So we're, we're, we're above this red curve right now. Um, but a common myth is that if we reduce or stop the burning of fossil fuels, the, C, the CO2 will go away. Well, this is from a very simple model. Again, this, these are those uh, fossil fuel emissions that we show down here, the business as usual. And I think what this one assumes is that we go up until about 2100, maybe a little bit later, and then we just start to run out. Um, these are some of the other scenarios where we uh, where we cut back our consumption. And you see that in all of these cases, what happens is whatever impacts we make, they're going to stick around for a long time. If we, if we were to stop burning fossil fuel tomorrow, it's not just going to go away. 
And so we can think about this as not permanently, but permanently in any time scale other than geologic. And so sort of going back to what we're to where we began, we have this at we have the atmosphere sort of think about the bathtub. And we burn fossil fuel every year, about 8 billion tons. And about 4 billion tons sort of are filling the tub. And then about 800 billion tons in the tub. And then we're drawing out these two sink terms. This is the land biosphere and the ocean. And these are sort of what's removing the CO2 from the atmosphere. And we can think about that bathtub drainage, right? This is the land drainage right now. And they absorb the CO2 quickly. But like I said, that can't last forever. We can't keep going that way forever. Now, our drain from the tub for the oceans, right? The oceans can absorb a lot more of that CO2, but it, access is a lot slower. Remember, there are only those two places where the water is being transported from the surface ocean into the deep ocean. If we're going to store a lot of CO2 into the ocean, we have to move it away from the surface. We have to get it into that deep ocean, and those processes are very slow. And then, of course, the real place where you could store all this is in sediments of rocks, but, of course, that's a drip, um, if even that, on the time scale of human existence. And so we can think then about predictions for the future. Um, and what we have here is a study where they looked at various models and their prediction, this is now from 1850 to 2100. And this now shows the uptake for the land and the ocean. And then this will be the response of CO2. And this is now for a series of models. And one of the things you see is that the ocean is a, it's always an uptake. Right? It's always increasing. Now, there is quite a bit of variability between these. These will have to do with how the model uh, does air-sea gas exchange, how they parameterize ocean currents, um, how they do the biological processes within the ocean. But they're all consistent. Right? They're all showing an increase. They're all showing that, that the ocean is still a, a, an uptake or a sink even through the end of this century. If you come back and look at the land, though, okay, here's zero right here. By the end of this century, this is a model that says, well, things are just going to keep going the way they've been going. The land is going to continue to be a sink just like it has been. This is now a model. I believe that this is the one that predicts the Amazon conversion. And they say, no, no, no. By about the middle of this century, by about 2050, the land will no longer be a sink, but now will be a source term to the atmosphere. And that has dramatic repercussions for the total amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. This is about a 300 ppm spread. Remember that there are about 400 ppm in the atmosphere total right now. This is going to make, right, whichever one of these things happens is going to have a big impact on future climate. And these land models are all over the place. And so what this represents, remember I talked about a number of these mechanisms. I also talked about a lot of uncertainty with these mechanisms. But it all comes back, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get there in just a sec. So emissions of CO2 are a big part of a much larger biogeochemical cycle. Um, about half of it is removed. I've been beating on that pretty, pretty heavily because it's very important. Because they're not completely understood, right? These perturbations are not really understood. We don't know what they're going to do into the future. And this this uncertainty about these sources really sort of underscores our uncertainty for what's going to happen with 21st century climate. So this is, right, that this uncertainty, especially in the land, um, is really important for our understanding not only of present day climate, but for our ability to predict the future. And so that kind of comes to why we're here. Um, 
because this all comes back to photosynthesis. The photosynthesis, GPP, gross primary productivity, is the one way that, that plants remove all this CO2 from the atmosphere. And there's still a lot of uncertainty about that process, how it's variable in space and time. And that land sink is the residual from these very large terms. We're looking for a, a like a, a, a two to four gigaton signal in a 120 gigaton overall cycle. We're looking for a very small piece, a sort of a needle in the haystack, if you will. And so if we can quantify the uptake or the photosynthetic uh, removal of CO2 from the atmosphere, that's going to make our understanding of these planetary processes and our understanding of those sink terms and their potential behavior in the future that much more quantified. And so these observations of fluorescence have the possibility to provide a window into global photosynthetic processes. And so this, in turn, can, may help us to describe these processes more completely for our understanding of, of both present and future climate. So that's sort of why, speaking for myself, that's why I'm here. That's why I want to learn from, from these fluorescence measurements that are sort of an emerging technology. Um, and this is how I plan to exploit what we learn here this week. And I think I'm going to leave with this side. And look at this. I'm still in the green. I'm not even in the yellow yet. So there's plenty of time for questions if anyone has any.